1: You're listening to The
2: Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Kelly Evans, markets heading for their second straight down week, the Russia threat hanging over the market. How should you be prepared going into this three-day weekend? Are high prices and rising interest rates going to slow the red-hot housing market to a halt? We'll talk to the CEO of Realogy about the environment as the spring selling season is about to begin. And one trader, for stock. She tells us which three to buy and which one to bail on. All that and much more coming up. But we begin with Dom Chiu and the market numbers. All right, hey, Dom. the market
4: numbers, Melissa, we thought we're going to be a little bit better early this morning. We thought we were going to get a bit of a bounce after the worst day for the Dow so far in 2022. But we're losing steam. Because right now we're kind of approaching those session lows. The Dow Industrial is down over 300 points right now, roughly 1% declines there. The level in the S&P 500, 43.32 the last trade there, nearly 50 points to the downside, off about 1% as well. And underperformance again in the NASDAQ composite, off over 1.5%, 218 points to the downside, hovering just around 13,500 as your level. The growth trade is still very much a focus for many investors out there. We got earnings reports last night and throughout the course of the week from some of the big solar companies. In this case here, Sunrun is down 9% after a mixed result after yesterday's closing bell. Wider than expected loss, better than expected revenues. We got that similar mixed theme earlier this week from Sunpower, SolarEdge as well. Nonetheless, that sentiment Downside is carrying through to names like SunPower down 5%, Enphase Energy, one of the biggest solar names out there, down about 5%. And one of the big ETFs that tracks the solar business, that and the Invesco Solar ETF, ticker T-A-N, TAN, is down about 2% as well. So watch those solar stocks. Growth names still decidedly to the downside over the medium to longer term. And then Deere. It was a good report. Better than expected profits, better than expected revenues. They raised their annual forecast because farmers are making more money as crop prices go higher. Their balance sheets are getting better. They have more buying power. Nonetheless, deer shares have now gone from positive in the pre-market trade to down 3% so far. And as you can see, it's been a pretty range-bound trade for one of the biggest makers of farm equipment and heavy machinery out there. Just in the middle of that trading range right now, Melissa, This is a level some traders are watching just around 368 because it's just above that 50 day average price on a rolling basis that some traders like to look towards as a trend movement indicator. We'll see if that holds for deer shares. Supposed to be nothing runs like a deer, but today a little bit iffy there. Melissa, (laughs) back over to you. You couldn't
3: resist, huh, Dom? I couldn't do it. Thank you, Dom Chu. We begin with some news out of the Federal Reserve. The central bank is announcing that Fed officials, along with their spouses and minor children, will be restricted from owning individual stocks, bonds, and other assets. Elon Moy is in Washington uh, with where Capitol Hill stands on regulating rules over their members trading, Elon.
5: Well, Melissa, the new rules for the Fed actually go farther than the current proposals to ban trading in Congress. Lawmakers are debating whether to prohibit the purchase and sale of individual stocks, but it's still unclear whether cryptocurrencies would be covered as they are for the Fed. In fact, I asked Senator Sherrod Brown about that this week. He's been pushing to ban stock trading for a decade, but he told me that cryptos are more complicated and they're not part of his bill right now. Now, the Fed rules would also ban sector fund. Those are owned and traded by many members of Congress, including funds focused on Asia or even China specifically. Now, the most stringent proposal out there is bipartisan. It comes from Senators Elizabeth Warren and Steve Daines. It prohibits both trading and owning individual stocks. That's picked up some steam lately with Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow and Raphael Warnock and Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn, as well as Lindsey Graham, all getting on board. Just yesterday, Melissa, the Senate passed a bill that would require new disclosures from judges as well. The House passed a similar version of that last year. So clearly this is coming for all branches of government.
3: Melissa. Elina, what does a blind trust solve in terms of disclosures for, for Congress? Anything in a blind trust that's fine?
5: Well, that's what some are arguing, that mm-hmm. a blind trust is one way to ensure that they are not uh, sort of managing those active day-to-day trades, that that is in a separate bucket. But clearly, for some lawmakers, they feel like just owning the stock, even if it's in a blind trust, uh, means that you have an interest in seeing that company do better, and that might shape the policies that you support in Congress.
3: Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in Washington. Let's bring New Jersey Democrat Josh Gottheimer, Representative. Uh, if the Fed can come down with strict rules on stock trading, why hasn't it happened on Capitol Hill?
6: Well, I think you probably see it was just pointed out that there are several bills circulating right now um, with with one theme, which is that uh, members of Congress shouldn't be actively involved day to day in trading and buying and selling of securities. And I think that's the direction we're moving in. Um, And and obviously, you've got different drafts out there right now. And and we'll see what happens in the coming weeks and months.
3: Uh, As Ilan had mentioned, Congressman, uh, the Fed, what the Fed has enacted just about half an hour ago or so is more strict than any of the bills put forth by Congress. Shouldn't Congress be subject to the same rules that the Fed is? Why, why would rules that pertain to Congress, why should they be more lax?
6: I, obviously, it just came out in the last minutes, mm-hmm. uh, so I haven't I haven't seen the specifics yet of exactly what they put in place. But I think overall, the idea here is the right idea, which is that members should not be actively involved day-to-day trading, um, avoiding any, of course, conflicts of interest, and uh, and, and that's the way it should be. Um, And and I think that's, as you pointed out, the direction we're moving in, including with judges. I I think you could see it actually going broader over government employees uh, writ large that are involved in any kind of policymaking. Um, So, you know, I think that's the direction we're moving in.
3: As I understand it, Congressman, you are an active trader yourself. Do do you have any say in, in how those trades are directed?
6: Well, I'm not. I mean, I turned over the keys uh, when I got elected, in fact, ahead of when I got elected uh, to a third party, which is, I think, what you should do. I have nothing to do with managing my portfolio, um, which is how it should be. Right. There shouldn't be any kind of uh, involvement day to day of a member of Congress. And, and that's why I turn it over to a third party right away. And I think others should be doing that right away if they haven't, um, as we move to put in these other and uh, other protections in place.
3: When you say a third party, do you mean a blind trust?
6: Well, I handed over a power of attorney to um, a third party to an investor and they took over. So I'm I'm not aware of what's bought or sold at the time.
3: Do you think that uh, a blind trust should be permitted? Do you think that a third party? And it sounds like you think that that's fine. No, I think
6: right now, you know, I I think blind trust is certainly an option, you know, that we should consider. I think you shouldn't. You know, I think that is, as as I pointed out before, there are several different options at the table. They they have um, they each have different factors in them. And I think blind tr- setting up blind trusts um, is, is certainly one way that we should consider.
3: And crypto should be included, correct? I mean, is that what you think? Oh, sure, certainly. Yeah. 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 Why do you think that there's some reluctance by some of your peers to to include certain asset classes or to actually put a ban on on trading?
6: Well, I don't think people are, no one I've spoken to is reluctant. I think it's making sure that you set up something that's actually practical. Um, You know, people come in from all different positions, right, And, and from the private sector, or they have family holdings. And I think it's just making sure it gets set up in a way that I believe, as I said, lives up to the idea that no member of Congress should be actively involved in the buying and selling of securities day to day. And that's the way it should be. And I think we need to set up a structure that does that. Um, and and I think there are a lot of options at the table. I'll read what the Fed does as soon as um, uh, I'm off here. Um, but I, I think it's important. And you mentioned, listen, you mentioned uh, cryptocurrencies before. I think it should be included. I've got a piece of legislation that I've um, uh, been working on for months called the Stablecoin Innovation and Protection Act, which is all about um, um, setting up a one-to-one backing from US currency of of stable coins and and which are uh, digital representations of of a dollar as I see them and and I've been very focused on that because I'm worried from you put a, talk about just Americans right now and and being at risk with some of uh, of these stable coins and and what could happen if there's a run. On the market here and and making sure we protect consumers and that we're doing everything we can to give the certainty of the marketplace that we need to make sure these companies grow uh, and prosper in the United States, but also that we protect our consumers
3: in terms of the allocations uh, of the assets, which these stable coins are backed by congressman. Is there a minimum requirement in terms of how many dollars it has to hold versus dollar equivalents?
6: It's a great question. Well, you know, it depends if you're. There's two options that my bill sets up. You can be non non bank or banked, and if it's non bank, it's got to have 100 percent reserve of assets of of U.S. dollars or um, or the short term assets like U.S. Treasuries. Uh, so, and then of course, a bank is is, is would be traditional holdings um, and, and requirements. I think it's important that we are providing the kind of assurances to people who are making who are, who are purchasing these qualified stable coins as i call them in in my legislation and that and the people know they're backed that they're backed right and they're and backed by us dollars by us currency uh, i think that's a very important part of that and it's what i'm hearing frankly from i've been meeting with a lot of not just the regulators or in Treasury and, um, and the SEC, but also um, those in the space who, uh, you know, the FTXs of the world and Coinbase and, and other and Circle and others and who we've been meeting with and talking to. And, and they were very positive of the direction we're, we're moving in here.
3: Yep. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much for for your time and for your thoughts on all sorts of different topics today. Josh great Donheimer. to see you. Have a good weekend. You too. Let's get back thanks. to the markets here. Investors are keeping a close eye on the developments along the Russian-Ukrainian border. Crude, gold, palladium prices all holding relatively stable compared to some of the big swings we've seen since Monday, while the Venek Russia ETF RSX now negative for the week. Kayla Towshey is in Washington with the very latest. Kayla.
2: Melissa, President Biden is set to speak at four o'clock this afternoon to update the American people on the situation in Ukraine. Those remarks are coming after President Biden convenes a call with transatlantic leaders, most of whom have been engaged in this flurry of diplomacy over the last few weeks to stave off a Russian invasion. Vice President Kamala Harris pledging unity with NATO's chief. She's supposed to meet with Ukraine's president tomorrow at the Munich Security Conference, but there are new concerns that Vladimir Putin may try to explore President Zelensky's absence when he travels, a Zelensky spokesperson telling NBC a final travel decision has not been made. A day after Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned the Kremlin could stage bombings to justify an invasion, local government in a rebel-controlled area reports a car bombing near their headquarters this morning. But the U.S. is not backing down on defending the region. Secretary of Defense General Lloyd Austin is sending new tanks and troops to Poland and says the U.S. will continue to.
0: What Mr. Putin wanted or did not want
7: was a stronger NATO on his flank, and that's exactly what he has today, and that's what exactly what he'll have going forward.
2: Secretary Blinken is supposed to meet with Russia's foreign minister late next week. The U.S. has conditioned that meeting on no further military escalation, but the Kremlin has said it has no choice but to continue nuclear drills. Melissa?
3: Kayla, where what is uh, the latest on China and where it stands, how far it's going to go in, in backing Putin and how far the United States would go in sanctioning not just Russia, but including China in those sanctions?
2: Uh, Well, certainly there has been discussion at many levels of the administration of how China would play a role in these sanctions, specifically with regard to some that are under consideration at the Commerce Department, some novel export control rules uh, that some worry if they were put in place, they would simply just funnel products through China to Russia and try to avert them that way. Now, there's no word on exactly what China has communicated on how or whether it would comply with such, such sanctions, because it's also not clear if those sanctions would go forward, Melissa. The administration up until this point, despite pressure from Congress, has said uh, they are not going to be implementing sanctions before an invasion because they say it is still the most powerful deterrent. Melissa. Kayla, thank
3: you. Kayla Tausche. The risk of a Russian invasion spooking markets, which are on track for a second straight week of losses despite rising risk. Our next guest says now is the perfect time to snap up some cheap stocks, especially small caps. Joining us now is Brian Smolish, the principal and portfolio manager at Hood River Capital Management. Brian, great to have you with us.
8: Thanks, Melissa. Good to
3: see you. At what point do you think uh, a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine is an impact? I mean, it's obviously impacting the market, but at what point does it prevent you from deploying new capital?
8: Well, I, I actually don't think it does at this point. Um, as far as companies that we're looking at in the portfolio, any impact to the earnings forecast that we're looking at next 12 to 24 months is minimal. I think what's a lot more important is the inflation and rate outlook for the vast majority of the portfolio.
3: And so for the holdings that you you have, Brian, how are, I mean, I would, they're not insulated from inflation. So how do you factor that in? And are you assuming that the Fed has a handle on inflation? will be able to control it because that seems to be a major risk, particularly to small caps.
8: It definitely is. The market's pricing in right now around 125, 150 basis points worth of tightening. If you look at high yield spreads, which is a good proxy for people's attitudes toward the small cap market, those are okay. They're around 140 basis points. So the way we're thinking about is we just want to attack each name aggressively on valuation, which is what we do anyway. And then we want to use the downdraft here to buy the companies where we think they're inefficiently priced based on that earnings power and the fact that the street estimates are too low. We want to be part of good companies, good management teams that are going to make or or beat estimates at good valuations. And the valuation part is what protects you in bad markets like this.
3: So in the past couple of weeks, in the past month or so, when the markets have had a volatile time, Brian, and we're really coping with with first, you know, inflation fears and, and now also with with Russia invasion fears. Are there positions you've added to or are there new positions you've you've taken on?
8: Yeah, we're pretty active. Um, we've added to Celsius, we've added to LoveSack, we've added to Chart Industries. Um, all of those companies we think are gonna make or beat estimates for the next six to eighteen months. The valuations are all attractive. Uh, Celsius is actually extraordinary growth. It's growing around 230% right now. The street has 65% growth. This year, I think this will be closer to 100%. And I expect the earnings forecast for 2023 to be more like 2022. So you see a big pull in the demand. And I think they're going to deliver on earnings no matter what happens with rates and, and with uh, with Ukraine, for example. Lovesac is a couch company, essentially. And they they've and they've, they've added this uh, this technology that, that embeds speakers in the couch that doubles the average selling value of the system when they sell to a customer, which gives a lot of flexibility with how they deliver numbers throughout the courses this year. The street's estimating around 25%. I think they can easily exceed that based on this new product.
3: Are these two companies immune or, or you know less impacted by supply chain issues?
8: So Celsius, the big concern there, is can availability. And and I think they've locked in cans, aluminum cans, for all of this year, and they can deliver on the growth numbers that I was discussing earlier. Uh, Lovesac has done a good job diversifying their supply chain and building up inventory, so I think they can easily hit the growth numbers based on supply chains. It's nothing new for these companies. They've been building it up. The, The margin hit is already built in to both of those companies' street estimates, and I I expect the margins to trough either this quarter or next quarter based on supply chain issues that you were just referencing.
3: All right, Brian, thanks for your time. Good to see you. Brian Smolik. Thanks. With Hood River Capital Management. Coming up, shares of real estate services from Realogy on pace for their best day in a year after posting a big earnings beat and seeing a 30% jump in transaction volume. Up next, we'll speak with the CEO about what he is seeing in the housing market and the impact that rising rates could have, plus, Three buys and a bail is back, and our trader says don't be fooled by this stock's 77% plunge from its all-time high, the name she is staying away from, and the three she likes is a way to play this market volatility. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map, Cisco and Coke leading the way here. Intel and Boeing, the biggest laggards in today's session. The exchange is back right after this.
0: This is... The exchange on
7: cnbc
9: canva presents stories to keep you up at night it was an ordinary work day until the singapore presentation is at 3 a.m the office was shocked
7: (laughs) that's when we sleep
9: maya made it less scary with canva
7: <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime.
9: Record and present anytime with Canva Presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.
10: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration.
3: Welcome back to The Exchange. Want to uh, bring you to the market numbers here because we are sitting close to session lows at this point. The Nasdaq is feeling the brunt of the pain, down by 1.8 percent. S&P 500 is down by 51. All sectors are lower today. Tech discretionary leading the declines in the session. Definite bid for bonds with the 10-year yield down to 1.92 percent. Shares of Realogy, meantime, soaring today after reporting a record quarter announcing a $300 million million share stock buyback. As a parent company of Coldwell Bankers, Sotheby's and Corcoran, Realogy's brokers were involved in nearly 17 percent of all U.S. home sales in the last quarter. Will the momentum continue in 2021 into 2022, I should say, as rates rise and the future of the housing market looks less clear? Joining us now is Ryan Schneider, the president and CEO of Realogy. Ryan, great to have you with us.
0: Melissa, thank you so much for having me.
3: Lost track of the years because 2021 was such a crazy housing market year. Ryan, what does 2022 hold, especially as as we're looking at rising rates?
0: Well, for Realogy, we're real excited with our momentum going into 2022. We earned over $900 million of EBITDA last year, 550-plus million of free cash flow, uh, and gained about 100 basis points of market share. So we're excited to take that momentum into the year. You know, Rates have been ticking up a bit, as, you've, as you mentioned. But so far this year, we haven't actually seen that affect demand yet. But part of that's because, you know, demand has just been outpacing supply pretty substantially in housing. And we haven't seen that slow down, at least for the first six weeks of the year.
3: So given the tight market conditions in terms of inventory, Ryan, how how will home prices hold up? Usually when rates rise, price has to come down. The affordability has to be a certain point for the buyer on a monthly basis. Um, So how does that factor in this year, given the dynamics of supply and demand?
0: Yeah, we don't see price going down this year, Melissa. Mm -hmm. You know, we frankly see price continuing to uh, go up, uh, again, partly because of that demand and supply mismatch right now. Uh, And uh, it's shown up so far in the numbers for the first six weeks of the year. That said, we also, though, see continued strength in the units of the housing market. You know, for about a decade, we were stuck between five and a five and a half million units of housing kind of sales. Uh, here in the U.S., it's popped up to around six million in the last couple of years. We think that'll take a little bit of a step back, but we'll still be above what it was for the previous decade. That's good for us with our leading market share, and uh, and we're obviously rooting for our builder friends to build as many houses as possible.
3: <laughs> supply supply chain issues are posing a little bit of a problem for them, Ryan. And I'm wondering also if if the if the, the, the entrance or the continued entries into, of investors into the market make it difficult for for home buyers and and propping up prices the existing home numbers had an interesting stat 22 percent are investors in the market so what what sort of competition is that providing home buyers well, well-
0: Well, you know, it's a very segmented thing. And if you go at it from the realty perspective, you mentioned some of our great brands, Sotheby's International Realty, Corcoran, Coldwell Banker. You know, we're the leading player in luxury. And obviously, Mm -hmm. in luxury, you're not running into some of the uh, uh, institutional buyers. But the place where I think the market's really just the toughest is the entry-level buyer. You know, that's where the supply is the lowest out there in the country. That's where the single family rental companies are a competitor to them. And bluntly, that's also where the increase in rates makes the biggest difference, given how the vast majority of those people, you know, use mortgages, whereas a lot of luxury buyers actually buy with cash. So of all the segments of the market, that entry level one is the one that is is both the toughest and that we worry about the most um, uh, as we roll here into 2022.
3: In terms of luxury, Ryan, which markets are the hottest at this point? You've got a bird's eye view across the country.
0: Yeah, so two I'll call out. One, you know, Florida has been very, very strong uh, across the board, including luxury, but even in kind of the premium, you know, middle market part of Florida. And then New York City has had a great comeback. By far the toughest market hit by COVID, the last market to come back, but it's really had a strong last few months. And even January, we saw contracts up versus December for new, for new contracts for purchases. And usually in January, contracts are down about 20 percent versus December. So, you know, New York's a great new comeback story. Florida has been on fire for about 18 months, and, and that's one of our biggest markets and has been part of our share growth and, and uh, economic success.
3: At what point does market volatility play a role in, in getting deals done, Ryan, in terms of investors getting cold feet?
0: Uh, when you say market volatility, do you mean rates, or Stock do you mean market, the sorry. equity markets? the
3: equity markets.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, uh, we haven't seen that really affect deals getting done, uh, other than you know the big drop when the pandemic hit. You know, back in March and April of 2020. Since then, and even before then, you know, the the strength of the markets, even when there was near term volatility over time, has kind of carried people through, and 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 we just haven't seen that happen except in the kind of the truest unknown times like we saw there for a month or two
3: all right that's how resilient the market is ryan great to speak with you thank you
0: thank you melissa have a good weekend
3: you too ryan schneider realogy still ahead the muni market is seeing its biggest outflow since the beginning of the pandemic is this a temporary pullback or will rising rates put this safety trade in peril plus Shares of DraftKings are plunging as the company projects a wider-than-expected adjusted loss for 2022. We'll dig into those numbers, tell you what the CEO is saying about the path to profitability. The stock is on pace for its sixth straight month of losses, and now 75 percent off its all-time high. The exchange is back in a moment.
9: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work.
7: Welcome
3: back to the exchange Uh, right now. Markets are just off of session lows here. You see the Dow is down by eight-tenths of a percent. S&P 500, just about nine points off of session lows, down about a percent here. All 10 sectors on the S&P 500 are lower, by the way. NASDAQ Composite is down by 1.7 percent. We're seeing uh, some of the higher flyer, higher valuation names really taking it on the chin today. Let's take a check on the sectors for the week Energy, the biggest underperformer this week, interestingly, though still up 20%, leading all sectors uh, this year. Consumer staples, the only sector in the green this week, thanks in part to a big move higher by Kraft. And take a look at some of the individual movers at this hour. Shares of General Electric falling after announcing that it expects supply chain and inflation challenges to persist at least through the first half of the year. Redfin, meantime, sinking following its results. The company beat on EPS, but the company said it expects expects losses in the first quarter 2022 to exceed those of 2021. The stock is down 46 percent this year. And the EV stocks, they're all having a rough day. Fisker, Nia, Lordstown, Tesla. All down, Tesla, by the way, is now down 20 percent this year. Now let 's get to Frank Holland for a CNBC News update. Frank:
11: Hi there Melissa here's what's happening at this hour. Kim Potter, the former Minnesota police officer who says she confused her taser with her handgun when she fatally shot Dante Wright, has now been sentenced to two years. Sixteen months of that will be served in prison, the rest on supervised release. That's far less than state guidelines that called for six to eight and a half years in prison. The judge says mitigating factors warranted a shorter sentence. Dante Wright's mother says she feels cheated. Speaking to reporters after the court session, she was very critical of the judge's decision.
1: The justice system murdered him all over again. (laughs) To sit there and watch, pouring my heart out in my victim impact statement that took so long to write and I reread it over and over again to not get a response out of the judge at all. But then when it came down convicting, or to sentencing Kim Potter, she broke out in tears.
11: On the news, more reaction to the sentence and what it means for policing and police reform. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. At 4 p.m. Eastern, President Biden will give an update on Ukraine and efforts to de-escalate tensions with Russia. It will come just after you host a phone call with some world leaders about the UK- Ukraine crisis. That's the very latest. Melissa back over to you.
3: All right, Frank, thank you. Frank Holland, still ahead. Chamath Palihapitiya stepping down as Virgin Galactic chairman effective immediately. Shares of Virgin Galactic down 8%. We've got the very latest on this. Next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Billionaire investor Chamath Palihapitiya is stepping down as chairman of Virgin Galactic effective immediately. Robert Frank is here with a closer look at the uh, so-called SPAC king, Robert.
12: Well, Melissa, before stepping down from the Virgin Galactic board, Chamath Palihapitiya cashed out his entire personal stake in the company. Now, according to SEC filings and Smart Insider, Chamath sold his stake in two batches, the first in December of 2020, cashing out about $98 million worth of shares at an average price of about $25 a share. The second sale was last March. That was about $213 million at over 34 bucks a share. The shares now trading, of course, at around $8. He still has shares indirectly through social capital. That's his investment fund. But last year, when he sold, he told CNBC that he planned to redirect the sale into a large investment to fight climate change. Now, so far, it's a little unclear What that investment might actually be, he also said at the time that he remained, quote, as dedicated as ever to the Virgin Galactic team, mission, and prospects. Now, he did make a similar sale at SoFi, selling 15% of his total stake. That was when the stock was trading at over $22 a share. That is twice where it is today. Now, the Chamath SPAC index, that's a basket of 10 companies that became public through SPACs that he sponsored That total basket is down about 40% today. And along with cashing out of his companies, though, he has also once in a while been a buyer. Back in November, he actually bought $10 million worth of shares in Clover Health at $5.75 a share. But, Melissa, when I tweeted these numbers out earlier, just a very polarizing reaction. Some people saying uh, that he really took advantage of investors. Some people saying, look, this proves... What a smart and well-timed investor he is.
3: Well-timed, except that his, some of his SPACs are still looking for targets. And so I think that's sort of the yes. question that people have, is that you know this is sort of emblematic of all of these sort of risk assets in the markets. He seemed to time the sales pretty well in, close of, in terms of being close to the top, at the peak of, of this whole asset bubble, whether it be SPACs or some of these higher valuation risky innovation names, let's call them. Um, And so for all the flack that Kathy Wood has been getting about ARK Invest, Robert, you got to wonder, you know, it's no surprise, really, that that people are directing some anger towards Chamath Palihapiti as well.
12: Yeah. And and if you look just the sheer number of SPACs, I mean, we talked about the SPAC king when we started off the segment. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone else has, you know, as many SPACs. I think it's over a dozen at this point. Like you say, some of them have yet to find acquisition targets. And also not just the amount of cash they took off the table when they became public, like Virgin Galactic, but also the amount of money in terms of fees and and free equity that they got going in through the pipes and the 20 percent that the sponsors get. So if you if you look at all of the wealth that he's gained going in and all the wealth that shareholders have either gained or lost going out, I just think there's in the end going to be a pretty big imbalance there.
3: Yeah, it's all unfolding still, Robert. Thanks for digging into the story and the numbers. Robert Frank. Sure thing. So I had funny value in the wreckage. My next guest says look for honey badgers and phoenix. Hmm. Danielle Shea joins us to explain what they are and why they're a buy, plus one stock she sees falling further off a cliff. Three buys and a bail is next. Welcome back, everybody. The average is on pace to close out a second straight week of losses. So where are the buys and what's one name to stay away from? Joining us now is Simpler Trading Director of op- Options, Danielle Shea. She's got three buys and a bail. Um, Danielle, let's get straight to it. First up is a, is a reopening play. Live nation's down about 3% of the year, surged more than 60% in 2021, even though live events are still not back to pre-pandemic levels. This one is the honey badger, in case people were wondering
1: Why? So Melissa in this kind of market environment I like to look for honey badgers which are stocks that don't really care what the rest of the market is doing they're not really keeping up with the indexes live nation in particular has not been impacted by interest rate jitters it hasn't been impacted by Russia. It's still just going along its merry way. As you can see it still has a really nice bullish trend it's just below previous all time highs meaning it has a lot of relative strength here in the market. And yes we haven't seen a full reopening but we have seen in live nations earnings is that they have been substantially increasing earnings over the course of the past couple quarters. And investors have been happy with those results so that tells me that when the reopening does continue, hopefully, uh, we'll continue to see higher prices. So in this stock, I like it right here at current prices. I would have a stop below about 100. And my upside target is about 140. So I think it has a really nice risk reward ratio as well.
3: All right, let's get to uh, the next buy. And that would be Chesapeake Energy. It's it's about 10 percent off the highs, up more than 40 percent since it began trading a year ago following a financial restructuring riding higher, along with the price of oil and net gas these days. How much rough upside do you see for this one?
1: So you know I like this one here because ever since it got relisted earnings have been doing really well we've seen investors react positively to earnings they've been beating quarter after quarter. Um, When you're looking at the current prices right now it's sitting up around $65 I would have a stop on this stock really around 62 $60 a share but I think we can get upside into about 75 $80 so I think that this represents a good idea because right now I see natural gas on a weekly chart timeframe consolidating and I think that natural gas is going to break out and I think Chesapeake is going to go right along with it
3: finally you love semiconductors especially uh, AMD, That one's down 20% to start the year. 30% off the highs is the chip shortage. Whack the whole sector, demand is still high. Um, you say it looks like a bargain, Danielle.
1: Yeah, so I love the semiconductor stocks because these are my favorite Phoenix stocks. The Phoenix stocks are the stocks that are typically the first to rise from the ashes after a correction like what we're experiencing right now. Yes, these stocks are absolutely, you know, they're aggressive, they're volatile. But the reason why I like AMD is because it's sitting on its 200 simple on the daily chart um i've been eyeing a buy between hundred dollars and about 110 dollars a share so we're right within that zone i'd keep a stop below about 100 about 95 so i think the risk reward is pretty good because it has upside potential into about 140. it's a strong company they have lisa sue at the helm earnings have been really solid so i think that after the correction ends which right now it's uh currently not looking like it's going anywhere soon But I think that this is going to be one of the first stocks to rise from the ashes.
3: What would you rather, AMD or an ETF, like an SMH?
1: So I actually own both I think it depends on the investors individual risk tolerance I definitely like to buy SMH um, on a regular basis in my long term accounts for those who don't like the volatility that comes with AMD and Nvidia SMH is a great choice. I also buy Soxel and this is going to be the 3x ETF I actually I trade a lot of options and Soxel has really high implied volatility and so in this market environment right now where we're seeing a lot of gaps higher and lower Soxel will move, you know, 10% in a day. I like to hold on to my SOXL and then sell covered calls against it on, you know, days where we see a lot of volatility. So that's also another strategy that investors can use in this market environment right now.
3: Right. To take advantage of that uh, high vol. Um, Those are the buys. All right. Let's get to the one bail to focus on, and that would be Zoom video. It's gotten absolutely crushed down more than 30% this year, 70% off the all-time high. You say don't touch it. What's wrong with this one? Everybody's using Zoom still.
1: Well, that's true. Everyone is still using Zoom. But at the end of the day, when you look at the technicals and uh, honestly, it goes back to the fact that just so many investors bought this stock when it was parabolic and it was up at the highs and they want to get out and so even though i do actually like zoom the company but the technicals i mean you you just can't get away from that if you look at what occurred the past two quarters on earnings the stock has already gotten hammered two quarters in a row and when we see that what typically happens is when you get into the time frame pre-earnings investors are scared they're jitty they're jittery they don't want to be holding this stock for another earnings report and have happened what's happening with Roku right now. So typically you're going to see investors selling those shares prior to earnings. And if this report is not completely phenomenal, it's just gonna fall like a rock. So those are the reasons why, even though I do like the company and people are using it, I think it's a good short right now. I think that traders could short it down to about 120. And post earnings, I mean, if it doesn't do well on earnings, it may even go to 100.
3: That's quite some ways down from where we are right now, Danielle. Unfortunately, the chart for Zoom looks like the charts of a lot of other sort of former work-from-home darlings that we've seen have a great fall since uh, you know the the heights last year. Um, Are there others that you say are are similar in terms of still being a short, even though they've been falling
1: knives? um yes what traders should look for is they should look for this pattern they should look for stocks that were parabolic last year they got a lot of hype you know you had a lot of new investors especially buying up at the highs they were the covid stocks that we were all trading and they've had at least one or two quarters where they have gapped down post earnings and have just continued to sell off there are multiple companies coming up with earnings next week that fit this exact pattern Uh, we got to have Moderna, Etsy. And like I said, I like these companies, but this is a technical pattern. Coinbase is coming up next week. We also have Monday, MDT, uh, Skills, many different companies next week that are fitting this pattern that if they cannot do something phenomenal on earnings, we're going to see lower prices here. All right. We'll watch. Danielle, thank
3: you. Danielle Shea. DraftKings sharply lower despite reporting a smaller than expected loss. The stock is down more than thirty-five percent so far this year. Down more than twenty-four uh, percent just this week, and off more than seventy-six percent from its fifty-two week high. This is mobile sports betting is gaining steam. So, what's the disconnect? That's next. Here's a DraftKings down nearly twenty percent despite a smaller than expected loss and a revenue beat but the company projecting a larger-than-expected loss for the full year. Contessa Brewer spoke with the CEO just a short while ago. She joins us now with the latest. Contessa.
10: Hi there, Melissa. Yeah, a wider loss on increased revenue guidance, DraftKings predicting 2022 negative EBITDA, that's a key earnings metric, a loss of between $825 million to $925 million. That's a loss. On revenue of $1.85 billion to $2 billion, that was actually an increase, 7% from previous guidance for the midpoint there. look, nobody's focused on the revenue, that's why. They're focused on a path to profitability when and how that happens. DraftKings knows it, Melissa. They're highlighting the contribution profit positive states, which analysts tell me is rather a novel metric. CEO Jason Robbins defines it as gross profit minus external marketing. It did not appear to sway the market today.
8: It's a wild market right now. I think what we're doing has been very consistent since day one. We've been, you know, managing to two to three year path to profitability in each state we have five that are contribution profit positive now five more on slate by end of year so i think the model's working and you know we'll play the long game here
10: lloyd danzig of sharp alpha advisors which focuses on sports betting investments uh says that this contribution positive is actually a meaningful metric he told me that look if you've got five states showing a positive return on your investment that provides in theory a basis to believe that massive spending say in new york will follow a similar trajectory another issue getting attention here is the potential need to raise additional capital robbins told me and he said it on the call as well he doesn't anticipate this Even if a big state like California permits commercial sports betting, and then, of course, they would need to invest a lot to launch the state. He says if there's multiple big states, if you get Florida, Texas, and California, that maybe changes the scenario a bit.
3: Contessa, what is external marketing? Does that include
10: incentives? Promotions? Basically, it's anything that it costs to acquire customers, is how uh, the company spokesperson put it to me. So if you take the gross profit and take out what it costs them to acquire customers. But, you know, you exclude other costs. That's what they're coming up with and saying that it's, it's positive. It's really confusing. You know, the analysts that I talked to, even after the call, they asked about it on the call and they're scratching their heads afterwards uh, about whether it's meaningful to investors. If you look at the stock today, I, I don't, I don't know that that has sold anybody, but on the other hand, they said that they plan to be profitable by the end of 2023, there's a goal point in, in sight, and that their other metrics like customer retention have increased um, their amount that is bet on their platforms, even in states where they had it, where you can compare you know, the state to the previous year, it's gone up. And so they have some positive metrics to report.
3: Right. Um, when a company comes up with a new metric on which to judge profitability, that's always sort of a, a troubling sign for investors in general, <laughs> Contessa. So no surprise. Contessa Brewer, thanks for the very latest. Coming up, muni bonds have been selling off as the market braces her rising rates. So is it time to go bargain hunting? Should you stay away? That's next. Municipal bonds have lost about 3.3 percent since the beginning of the year, following concerns of a more aggressive Federal Reserve this year. In fact, last week, investors sold nearly three billion dollars of muni funds, the most since the market meltdown in March of 2020. So should investors stay away from this asset class or is this the time to pick up assets cheaply? For more, I'm joined now by Mike Zizis, the uh, head of U.S. public policy research at Morgan Stanley. Michael, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Is there Are there bargains out in Muniland at this point, or, or are investors going to wait on the sidelines until market uh, the markets become more stable?
13: Well, I mean, bargain is not the word I would use. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that you've had the market correct from very rich levels to very average valuations on a relative basis, on, on a historical basis as well. And credit quality in the market is really good. You made the comparison in March of 2020 in March of 2020, we were looking into the abyss from a credit fundamental perspective. Credit fundamentals in the market are, are likely quite stable for the rest of the year. So um, while bargain's probably not the right word, I think it's fair to say you're getting a fair price here, particularly if you're in a high tax bracket and you need to be owning duration from an asset allocation perspective. The is still probably less than constructive if you're just looking for a big total or excess return perspective. You probably should wait for uh, wider and cheaper levels.
3: Are there catalysts on the horizon, Michael, that could, uh, you know, get investors back into this market, even though it's just fairly valued as opposed to bargain, bargain valuation?
13: Yeah, well, there are obviously cheaper levels that would probably achieve Mm -hmm. that. And the catalysts for that are the same catalysts you've had for the sell off so far. It's really it's the reversal of two things that were macro tailwinds last year that have become the headwinds. One, is Fed policy. And I think specifically, it, it's that the Fed is telling you it needs to maintain its right to change its mind, given a set of very challenging circumstances uh, to, to manage inflation. And that translates to rates volatility. Muni investors tend to flee from rates volatility. Mm-hmm. And then the other is this secular trend of the uh, household excess household savings, which built up over the course of the pandemic, are probably now getting spent down. Um, two-thirds of that excess household savings accrued to the top 20% of households. Those are muni buyers. So, those trends probably mean you're still going to have volatility in the market and probably cheaper levels. And once you get to those levels, you probably get a a reversal because, again, credit quality is still pretty good. So, I wouldn't let the perfect enemy be the good if you're in a high tax bracket now. You could put some money to work. But the skew is probably towards wider levels from here.
3: Yeah. You do say, though, that uh, rates would have to rise another 60 to 100 basis points in order for there to be risk to this market. Is that right? We, we're, we're just about out of time, but I want to get that in yeah. there. Yeah.
13: Well, those are some very specific risks that are mm-hmm. unique to the muni market about duration, extension, and the like. So I'd say, again, there could be another level of sell-off that would be deeper if treasury yields rose to that level and introduced some of those very specific muni structure risks, i.e. call options, bonds having the price to final maturity instead of their
3: calls. Got it. Michael, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Michael Jesus. That doesn't for hurt the exchange. On.
1: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
7: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.